love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. One. One, two, three. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, so we don't feel good today. No. Uh, we bo- we're suffering from colds. It's, yep. it's not COVID. No. We took a test. We're negative. We try to be as positive as we can, except when it comes to COVID. It's been really hard the last couple of days, though. Uh, we are we're on our way out of the cold, so yes. that's good. My yeah. phlegm has returned to a clear <laughs> consistency. And samples of that are available if you want to uh, hit us up on our website. Don't be gross. We'll send you a gross. vial no. of cat's phlegm. Never, never. That is just <laughs> gross to say. I'm going to blame what you just said on the fact that you're sick. Okay, that's that fair. Gross. Yeah. Oh, so, by the way, I noticed that your suitcase is still packed in in the hallway with all your stuff still in it. Now, I'm what, ready to go. <laughs> you want to go back? Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. I'll blame that also on the fever that you're uh, you're experiencing. I right don't now. have a fever, though. If I had a fever, how would I say that in Spanish? Mi cabeza es muy caliente. <laughs> when we were in Cancun. We were getting a massage. We kind of treated ourselves a little bit. And during the massage, Kat was trying to figure out how to say, please don't rub my feet. I don't like that. In um, Spanish, but she couldn't think of the word for feet. So what she said was, it translated to, <laughs> please don't rub my shoe hands. <laughs> I figured, you know, she could figure out what I meant by that, yeah, right? I, sure. I pointed downward. Well, there you go. So that she knew I wasn't talking about my mitten hands. Uh-huh. Yeah. She, so she would know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to get into the show here, and please bear with us, as we are still a little, uh, a little iffy. Here we go. You've heard the phrase, they just love being in the limelight. Yes. What does that mean, even? Well, it, it's usually, it's when somebody wants to be the center of attention. Right, but where, why is it lime? That is what I'm getting to. Where oh. does that phrase come from? Limelight. It refers to a type of lamp that was previously used in theatrical stage lighting. Oh, I thought maybe it had to do with, 
What's the uh, scars opening up, blood shooting out of you, orange pirate Scurvy. disease? There we go. <laughs> I thought maybe <laughs> this is going to be rough. <laughs> <laughs> No, not talking about scurvy. Not talking about uh, the delicious green citrus fruit you often find in empty Corona bottles. According to History.com, this type of stage lighting was popular in the 19th century. Uh, It referred to the chemical that was being used, a chemical compound, calcium oxide, which is known as quicklime. Oh, okay. When calcium oxide is heated in a flame, it produces an intense white light, which was called limelight. In the mid-1820s, a Scottish military engineer devised the first practical use for limelight. It was used as a surveyor's tool. It wasn't until 1837 that limelight was used for the first time to illuminate a stage at uh, London's Covent Garden. By the mid-1800s, limelight was the preferred method of stage lighting, and it was pretty efficient, too. It it did cause, however, some problems, especially when used in lighting productions of ballet. During this time frame, the Romantic Ballet era was in full swing, and one of the biggest stars of this particular time period was a woman named Emma Livery. Emma was born in 1842, she was a French ballerina and the protege of the esteemed Marie Taglioni. Oh, we've talked about her. Yes, we have. She was revered for her grace and her beauty on stage. One contemporary review written by a guy named Paul Smith, um, which surprised me because it's the 19th century and usually it's Ebenezer something or other. Right. He wrote, quote, she skims over the ground, the water in the flowers, apparently without touching them, shims like a feather and falls like a snowflake. Emma was only 16 years old when she made her debut on October 19, 1858, with the Paris Opera Ballet. Her talent was immediately recognized, and that brought her great fame, and she quickly became a widely respected ballerina. Uh, after her performance in the title role of Le Papillon, which means the butterfly, butterfly, right? A noted sculptor of the day created little figurines of Emma in this role, both in bronze and bisque versions, um, kind of like a 19th century version of a bobblehead collectible. Sure. (laughs) And also kudos to you for knowing that papillon is the French word for butterfly. Well, I only know that because of a escape movie. (laughs) Right. With Dustin Hoffman, which by the way, was an amazing film. I love it. On November 15th, 1862, Emma was rehearsing the title role for an upcoming ballet. At the beginning of the second act, she made her entrance, gliding onto the stage. She shook out the frills of her skirt, which immediately caught fire from the limelights illuminating the scene. Oh, no. She burst into flame. No. Now, you're probably thinking, okay, well, there was no way to really fireproof a dancer in those days, but but you'd be wrong. A method of fireproofing costumes was available at this time, but oh, geez. Emma, along with female performers, uh, refused to use it. Why? Because it, uh, it would discolor the fabrics, but also it made the fabric really stiff and it prohibited free movement around the stage. Is that why tutus stick like straight out? 
is because of the that's, fireproofing. That's a great observation. Looking at the ballet dresses or skirts of the time uh. prior to that, they looked like regular skirts. They just fell down to around the knees uh-huh. and not tutu-ish. Right. I wonder. Anyway, using this fire retardant, uh, they complained that it affected their range of motion. So does being on fire. <laughs> I, yeah. In fact, really the only motion you should be taking is drop and roll. Um, In 1859 in Paris, an imperial decree was set forth. It required all costumes must be dipped in a chemical compound known as alum to protect them from catching fire. Still, most ballerinas refused to use the fire retardants. In fact... In negotiations to appear at the Paris Opera House, Livery had sent a letter to the director saying, quote, I insist on dancing at all first performances of my ballet in my ordinary ballet skirt. So back to the awesome display of ballerina pyrotechnics. Within seconds, Emma was fully engulfed in flames. She ran across the stage three times before a stagehand caught her And the fire was extinguished with the help of firemen, as well as other dancers in the company. Her burns were more extensive than they were deep. And the reason was because she was very modest when her skirt caught on fire. She clasped the burning fabric to her body as not to expose herself publicly. See, that's why modesty is bullshit. (laughs) I mean, it's one of the reasons. Um, Her upper body from her breasts to her face were undamaged. A doctor who happened to be in attendance said her thighs, waist, back, and shoulders, as well as her arms, were burned, and much of the costume had actually burned onto her. Ugh, that grosses me right out. I don't like that. Her mentor, Marie Taglioni, was in attendance and tried to ease the pain by rubbing grease makeup into her wounds, believing that that would act as an ointment. No, that was that was not good. That was not a good thing to do. That sounds like a terrible idea. It irritated the burns of and actually it would. inhibited the uh, the healing process. She suffered during her months of recovery, but she still was opposed to fireproofing skirts. She said, quote, "Yes, they are as you say less dangerous, but should I ever return to the stage, I would never think of wearing them. They are so ugly." Wow. Wow. Right? In 1863, to further advance her recuperation, moved from her home in Paris to a small town nearby. But during that process, her wounds reopened and they became infected and she died at the age of 20. Oh my goodness. Surviving scraps of her costume can still be seen at the Musée de l'Opéra in Paris. Although Emma was perhaps the most famous ballerina to catch fire and die, she certainly was not the only one. Are you okay? I'm going to spit up my seltzer. Sadly, multiple dancers met the same tragic end on stage. Some simply experienced small burns and were able to fully return to dancing, but many were not so lucky. This was not just something that happened once in a while. It was epidemic. Let me ask you this. What is it that's causing the fire? Is it the heat from the light or is it the chemical used in the light what creates the why is it fire it's it's a lot of things it's number one the 
the skirts that they wore at the time were very light and frilly. Right. I mean, secondly, but frilly things don't just. Yeah. No. the The limelights were positioned along the edge of the stage mm-hmm. to light from the floor up. Right. And when they would go out and twirl their skirts, oftentimes it would uh, come within the heat of the flame. And it didn't take much for them to catch fire. Okay, it was just they were they were getting all up in there. Yeah. Oh, okay. So after Emma's death, some safety measures were put in place. They put wire frames over the gas lamps. Sure. To help keep the skirts from making contact. You'd think that would have been a thing already. Like Ulti- a fireplace screen. Yeah. In fact, they were doing that for years in theater productions, but not in the ballet houses. So the question remains, why weren't these things enforced or put into place years before? The technology was there, the know-how was there, but it was just not enforced. Fire retardants were used in other public places like the theater. Uh, Materials such as plaster, clay, and even clothes that had been fireproofed for stage productions had been underway in theaters since the middle of the 1600s. Wow. Opera houses didn't do that. Even simple things like putting fireproof blankets backstage was not implemented until after years and years and scores of tragic events. Many historians believe that it was intentional on the part of the opera house owners and producers. The idea that one could go to the ballet and know that you could possibly see a dancer burst into flames was far too exciting for producers of the show to let go. Kind of like a circus type thing, like a trapeze artist. Yeah, it wow. added to the sense of danger That's to gross. every performance. Basically, many people didn't go to the opera to enjoy the opera. They went to the shows to see a ballerina potentially burned alive. No. It's kind of the same reason many people watch uh, NASCAR. Today, they just want to see a good car wreck. So eventually all these safety precautions were put into place and were enforced as they are today. That point in ballet history marks what's referred to as the end of the Romantic Ballet period and the beginning of the modern period. I love that the idea that burning alive ballerinas on stage was somehow romantic. Everything's a little more sexy by the light of a flickering flame. Let's have a couple of drinks in front of the roaring ballerina fire. My source material was Ripley's WikipediaInHistory.com. Ballerinas are flammable. And now, that thing in the middle. The world's oceans are filled with diluted gold. According to the National Ocean Service, there's around 20 million tons of gold dispersed throughout the oceans. Its concentration is only a few parts per trillion, according to the NOS. But the ocean's floor also has undissolved gold embedded in it. It's just not cost-efficient to mine. But if the ocean's gold were equally distributed among every person on Earth, we'd each receive about nine pounds. Did you know that I have to record these liners live every time this podcast gets played? I haven't slept in years. This is The Box of Oddities. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Matt. Did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope. Never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil, did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here, too. Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality, plus tons of extra theme content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's triviality. Support for the Box of Oddities is provided in part by listeners like you on Patreon. You can support us, too. Go to patreon.com slash box of oddities. Thank you. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. In the last episode, I read an email from uh, one of the Freak family members who had recently relocated to West Texas. Wex, Wex. Yep. West Texas, and uh, was sad because she hadn't quite settled in yet, nor had she met any box of oddities freaks. And our response was, "Be patient." The freaks will find you. You know they will. And somebody posted on the freaks group, Amber said, I just listened to box number 400, and there was a letter from someone who just moved to West Texas and felt alone. We wanted to let you know, flying my freak flag proudly here in West Texas, <laughs> like Jethro said, we will find you. Yep. And they shared a photo of the back of their car with their freak flag uh, sticker on there. I love that. Yeah. We're a big family. We're global. So you ready to, ready to tell me a story? I guess. Okay, let's try this. Okay. Let's give it a go. I, uh, I started researching uh, things based solely on the idea of what could I include audio clips so I could talk less. Oh, I see. Okay. And so here we are talking about weird instruments, which we've done before. Sure. You know, we talked about the cats and cloven, uh, which was pretty weird. That was... That was a thing. And <laughs> I remember uh, that one. Yeah. let's start with the pyrophone organ. So, the pyrophone organ is a lot like the big church organs that we're all pretty familiar with. But this one is powered by fire. It's also <laughs> known as a fire explosion organ 
or a fire calliope. It was invented by physicist and musician George Frederick Eugene Kastner. Did he ever play ballet music on it? <laughs> he did not. Okay. Actually, he probably did. I don't know. His father was a composer, and he took advantage of Dr. B. Higgins' 1777 discovery that a hydrogen flame positioned at the lower end of a glass tube could produce a note. As noted in Kastner's patent, if such a gaseous mixture exploding in small portions at a time be introduced at a point about one third of the length of the tube from the bottom, and if the number of these detonations could be equal to the number of vibrations necessary to produce a sound in the tube, all the acoustic conditions requisite to produce a musical tone are fulfilled. Creating a tune from gaseous emissions, uh, that's not the first time that was done. What was that guy's name, the, the great farter guy? <laughs> he would get on stage and fart old Susanna or something. I forgot about that guy. Again, yeah. again, wouldn't have survived the limelight period. No, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but when all these pieces come together, when flames in 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 tubes and <laughs> pipey, you know, yep. when all that comes together, you get something that sounds like this. That just sounds like somebody blowing into an empty Heineken bottle. <laughs> no, that was Westminster Quarters, uh -huh. the Big Ben tune. Mm -hmm. played on the pyro organ. <laughs> there are other pyrophones that sound a little more clear. There are pyrophones that sound less clear. It, uh, they're not a real well-refined instrument, uh, but I did see a Stella Artois video where they made a pyrophone organ using their goblets, and it was really kind of oh, cool. Wow. wow. But... Um, the song that they played was copyrighted, so I could not share that. <laughs> so yeah, fire and pipes, that makes music. What mm. else makes music? A road. A road makes music. Well, we've talked about this kind of thing before. Uh, there is a specific road in Lancaster, California, made by Honda, originally as a publicity stunt, that was designed to play the tune of the William Tell Overture. So it's a bit like the rumble strips, yeah, you yeah. know, to keep you from off the road. Uh, but uh, because of the way that they designed it, it's intended to play as you drive along at the speed limit. Thank you very much. It should be pretty awesome, but instead it sounds like butt. So a YouTuber, Tom Scott, made a video talking about how no matter how you drive on this road, it does not sound like the William Tell Overture. <laughs> okay. Um, and according to Scott, the math is simple. You just take the speed limit and divide it by the frequency of the notes that you want, and the result should get you the distance between the grooves on the road. And traveling at a different speed would change the key of the song, but the musical integrity would remain. But that's not the case with this road. So he referenced California Institute of Technology researcher David Simmons Duffins, who hypothesizes that a mistake was made when the 
engineers were communicating the measurements to construction workers. Mm -hmm. And when describing the distance between each groove, they didn't include the width of the grooves themselves. Oh. Which I've done that when like hanging pictures. I, you know, right, I forget right, right. to include like the width of the thing that I'm hanging it on. It doesn't matter. So instead of sounding like. Dun, 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 dun. Oh, you, you pointed at me. I thought you wanted me to. Okay, I was just trying to. But you already did that. So instead of sounding like that. Mm -hmm. That doesn't sound anything like it. I'm horribly disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> they need to tune their asphalt. Um, so the interesting thing about this is, I guess, like the Honda Road was built too near to a residential area. And people complained because, one, it sounds like butt. And it was too loud. So it would be like, <laughs> like all the time, right? And so they had to pave over it. And the city was like, you know what we'll do is we'll just move it somewhere where it's not so loud and disruptive to like families trying to sleep. And they rebuilt it, but they rebuilt it using the exact same measure. Oh, my God. So it still sounds like butt. What the hell, guys? <laughs> it's a great idea. I love that idea. I wish they did it in more places. Wouldn't it be cool if they could encode sound waves into the asphalt and then they could sell it advertising you know you'd be driving along and all of a sudden the pavement goes gillette the best a man can get <laughs> i would hate that well you would hate it unless you were a gillette executive and then you would be raking it in the dollars oh, i wish i was a gillette executive it's not too late sweetie <laughs> the theremin that sounds like a drug it does it was invented in 1919 and it's unique in that this instrument, when being played, is not touched by the player at all. Are you familiar with the theremin? I knew a guy that could play jingle bells on the keyboard with his penis once. It's the That's um, different. So he wasn't using his hands, but technically he was touching something. Yeah, I guess that doesn't qualify. Yeah. I just wanted to mention that I knew somebody mm -hmm. who could actually play jingle bells with his penis. Yeah. On, okay. a, on a keyboard. Yeah. yeah. It's a good thing it wasn't a tuba. What? I don't know. <laughs> I saw a video of a trumpet being played into jello the other day. <laughs> really? Yeah. It ended up sounding like... <laughs> God bless TikTok. Oh, I love it. I'll be drifting off to sleep and Kat is like, hey, wake up. Look at this TikTok of a guy playing a trumpet into a bowl of jello. <laughs> what? Jello bowl trumpeting. Okay. Put on your glasses. God dang. So the theremin was a product of Soviet government-sponsored research into proximity sensors. The instrument was invented by the Russian physicist Lev Sergeyev. He was known in the West as Leon Theremin, which is easier to say. The theremin generates radio frequencies from two antennae attached to its body that are controlled by the left and right hand of the player, modulating the pitch and the volume of pretty much invisible strings. It kind of generates a eerie sound, but okay. it has to be played with precision. Otherwise, it just sounds bananas.
I'm sorry, that was Mother's favorite song. Isn't it pretty, though? That is lovely. It's hypnotic. And it it can, I can definitely see how it can sound a little spooky book. So it's been used a lot in soundtracks of, like, paranormal films and such. Sure. But other than that, the theremin really doesn't get a lot of play. It also sounds, it, it sounds a little bit like a steel guitar, even. Oh, I see. With yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I used to be obsessed with Alan Jackson. <laughs> Not so much anymore? I mean, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate your honesty. You know who I do still love is that Dwight Yoakam. Every time I see him in a movie, I like, I'm all like, Dwight Yoakam! Yeah. I don't know why, but it, it thrills me to see Dwight Yoakam in films. Standing there all handsome in his shoe hands. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell we're a little overtired and a little punchy? Sorry about this show. Listen, the great stalagpipe organ. Hmm. The great stalagpipe organ is the largest musical instrument in the world. It's located in the Luray Caverns of Virginia, and it plays stalactites. It was invented by Mr. Leland W. Sprinkle. <laughs> 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 okay. Who has a great name. And he was inspired when he was on a tour of the cavern and the tour guide tapped the stone formations in the cavern to create a tone. And so he began a three-year project researching the vast chambers with the aid of tuning forks and uh, he was tapping these potential formations to see what tone they produced and then marking them so that he could then mm -hmm. create this organ. Some of the stalactites did need to be shaved, but eventually he got where he wanted to be. And then he set up electronic mallets that were wired through the caverns and connected to a console. And so when a key is depressed, the tone occurs by it kind of like a, a little rubber mallet tapping that stalactite wow. and it goes boom. And, and then it's that, yeah. So he's essentially playing a cave. Yes. Wow. Today, the organ is played by activating automated system. I guess it kind of works like a music box does, but the organ is fully capable of being played manually, which is kind of cool. Was that the sound, the the dripping sound? Was that water falling? Uh, yeah, you're in, in a cave. In, in the cave? Yeah. Okay, all right. So it's beautiful, but it also kind of makes me have to pee. Mm -hmm. But how cool is that, that that's a thing that exists? It is pretty cool. And you, when you go to it, which you can, you're inside the instrument. I mean, you're, you're in it, and it's just being played around you. It's just cool. It is. <laughs> it is. It's like being in a big subterranean pipe organ. Yes, exactly. With dripping water. 
Though in the past, caves have kind of freaked me out. My body like reacts poorly to being in a cave. Don't know why. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you might have to like haul me out on a stretcher or something. <laughs> but it would be worth it? In the meantime, I would very much enjoy it. Okay. Yeah. And lastly, the Vegetable Orchestra, also known as the Vienna Vegetable Orchestra. They're an Austrian musical group, and they use instruments made entirely from fresh vegetables. <laughs> What's the shelf life of an oboe? <laughs> What's neat is when they do live performances, the leftover vegetables and the offcuts are cooked into a soup and fed to the audience. <laughs> like, that's not a joke. It's true. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, as of March 2019, more than 150 types of instruments have been invented and used by the band. It includes carrot xylophones, radish bass flute, pumpkin drums, leek violins, Onion maracas. I got your onion bass flute. No. Um, hold on. Now, of course, we have to worry about copyright infringement, and I couldn't find a, a, a video of them playing. Cat is holding a container of, what is that, parsley? Yeah. And in, the, in her other hand, a cucumber. And I'm assuming you're going to play a song for me. I'm going to play a song for you, and you have to tell me what the song is. Ready? Okay. Okay. Barracuda by heart. No. Do it again. Undercover Angel, Alan O'Day. You're not even trying to listen. Okay, one more shot. I think your parsley's out of tune. Hold on. Cat's now dancing, and I have to say it's not helping. (laughs) But I'm really enjoying it. She is covered with uh, bits of parsley <laughs> and cucumber. It was released in 1986. You can leave your hat on. Yes! Really? That was Joe Cocker? Okay. All right. <laughs> ah. You don't. You're... I thought it was either that or Tusk by Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> Oh no! That was very clearly. You can leave your hat on by Joe Cocker. There is a there is a salad now on the floor below our recording mechanisms, and you destroyed a perfectly good bunch of parsley. It was art. Well, I'll give you that. Do you think that we have to worry about copyright infringement? <laughs> I think we're safe. I think we're good. I can't believe you played. You can leave your hat on. With a cucumber and a fistful of parsley and expected me to get it right away. It's because I trust you and I have faith in you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Anyway, those are some instruments. They they sure are. Yep. You have sources to cite? Oh, I do. Big thanks to Sprouts Market. <laughs> yeah, for providing the uh, percussion section. Uh, Science Museum Group, Wikipedia, obviously, PBS, Blu-ray Caverns, and Hello Music Theory. Well, that was just fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate you very much. And I also appreciate fresh vegetables even more than I did. And we appreciate you hanging out with us, you guys, and putting up with us in our haze of cold-induced... Haze. Haze. (laughs) We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. 
and its fate is in your hands. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast On Twitter at Box of Oddities And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast Copyright 2022 All rights reserved Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here And I'm Gabby and we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.